37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 122. That's, yeah, that's Late Night, volume two. Draw me like one of your French aliens. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we promised you guys some steamy, sexy sex this episode, so that's what we're going to deliver, and uh, I want Did you to... promise that, or did I promise that? Because I don't remember promising that. I promised it. I, I mentioned what should we talk about next time, and I said maybe we should get back into our late night uh, sexual hauntings through the ages. Yeah. Maybe that's why you were so surprised when I said I was going to read some of those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, lucky you. You can just sit back and relax and get yourself a glass of wine with the rest of the listeners. Uh, I got a tropical IPA from a Boulevard, so... Hmm. Hey, that'll do. Yeah. That'll do. I'm drinking a strawberry Lambic beer tonight. Oh. Well, guys, I want to preface really quick. This one is definitely not safe for work. I would not suggest uh, listening to this on a loudspeaker or with the volume turned <laughs> all the way up if you uh, don't want to get more funny looks than you already might get. It's not going to get too racy, but uh, you know, I think we're going to get a little, little steamy anyway. So, Presto, anything new with you, buddy? No, not really. Sweet. Me neither. Nothing, nothing new. I, I think I'm actually over that cold finally. Yeah. Which, two days ago, hell, last night would have been a lot of fun to record the episode when I sounded like Batman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm angry Batman. Ah. <laughs> two days before that, I sounded like Tone Loke singing Funky Cole Medina, so... <sighs> My my voice has gone through a lot of changes, but uh, I think I'm almost over it, so. Good. I mean, yeah. I got a plugged up nose, but I don't think it's because I'm sick. It's just, you know, <laughs> sinus pressure. Yeah, dude, this Kansas weather is just not making up its mind. Literally, it was like 78 degrees one day, and the next day it was 23. Yeah. So that's and now enough. it's back to like being in the 60s, so. Yeah. Just can't catch a damn break. No. Well, Steve's not going to be in this one. He's sitting this one out, getting things ready for uh, 13 Nightmares. We're going to record that new episode in just a few short days, and we're hoping to have that dropped uh, hopefully right before Thanksgiving, if all goes as planned. But sometimes Apple can be a fickle mistress, and if you post a new program, they may have to review it for a couple days. Yeah. So in the event that you get this after Thanksgiving, just please know that was not our doing. That was Apple Music. But, you know, you might find out on a different... Uh, oh, man, there it goes. My voice is cracking again. I think it's because we're going to talk about sexy sex, and now I feel, you know... Yeah, get on your tone, Loke. Pubescent. <laughs> but, yeah, so you may find it on some other uh, streams, but hopefully it'll be up on Apple Music at the same time anyway. So, Well, I don't think we're going to skip much more time than with the pleasantries. Let's get on into it. And I want to start things off in this steamy episode of Nocturnal Delights with the story of David Huggins. And I am almost certain we've never talked about this guy before. Can you recall it all? Yeah, no, we've never talked about him. Okay, I didn't think so. Well, David Huggins is an ordinary man with an extraordinary erotic tale. 
And Preston, I've included photos. If you go through the notes with me, you can see those. If not, uh, that's your fault. And guys, I will post these up on Instagram as well. Um, hopefully they won't get uh, flagged too harshly. There is some nudity in these paintings, but uh, I don't think it's anything to write home about. I've seen you know more erotic stuff posted on Instagram than this. So Anyway, so David was born in rural Georgia in 1944, and he led a fairly normal childhood. As a child, he enjoyed, you know, the normal things we all would do, especially kids in that era. He liked to go outside and search the fields for arrowheads. He liked to play in the woods. He messed around on the family farm. And on Sundays, he even got begrudgingly dragged to the church his grandparents went to. So most of us could say a pretty normal upbringing. But one morning, that so-called normal childhood got turned on its head. One morning when he was out in the woods playing, he was sitting under a tree, and suddenly he heard a voice in his head say, David, behind you. And when he turned around, there was this little hairy creature rushing towards him. It was short, furry, with large, glowing yellow eyes. Kind of like And it a... said, I'd fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Buffalo Bigfoot. <laughs> it was like a little... You really derailed me there. <laughs> it was like a little Bigfoot walking directly towards him. He was so surprised that he thought it was actually the boogeyman, and he took off running. He ran as far as he could, and then when he finally reached the house, he told his parents what he saw, and they just schlepped him off, thinking it was just a young child's imagination. Then, a few days later, in an early afternoon, an insect-like being randomly appeared that reminded him of a praying mantis. He said, I was terrified. It was like, what in the world am I looking at? It was a lot for an eight-year-old to take in, to even know what to think. So again, he rushed home and told his parents he saw another monster. Now, like any good farm parents, they just beat the shit out of him for lying and making up fibs. So after a pretty decent spanking, he learned very quickly not to talk to his parents or his family about these strange creatures he was seeing along the farm and in the woods. So he went on living the rest of his childhood, being visited by these strange entities, while no one else on the farm would notice them. These encounters would go on to become just a normal staple in his growing up. But then, things got a little racier. As he reached his later teen years, he left Georgia for New York in the mid-1960s to go to New York City's Art Students League. Not only did these strange beings follow him, but soon a new, sultrier creature would enter David's life. One afternoon in the mid-60s, as he was passing through a forested area on his way to the lake, he saw a strange woman sitting beneath a tree. As he approached the woman, he noticed she had very exotic features. She stood up and began to approach him. Unknowingly, David found himself really interested and very attracted to the woman. Without even thinking, he began walking closer to her. He describes her as looking very much like a human with a nice curvy body, ample breasts, all except she had large, oily black eyes and a thin, thin-lipped mouth, long, beautiful hair, and a very pointy chin. And along with her alien jugs, she also revealed to David her name. She was called Crescent. She stripped naked, as did David, 
and they laid down. She mounted him on the forest floor, and then boom, 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 bang, bang, bang. Higgins lost his virginity that day, or so he claims. He says since that day, he's fathered approximately 60 hybrid alien children. While David considers it a love affair, the aliens were in complete control of his body during these sexual encounters, making him essentially their unwilling slave for breeding purposes. So nocturnal visits from Crescent became a routine, he says. My relationship with Crescent was warm and friendly. A little strange. Well, what do I mean? Uh, very strange. She was my girlfriend, really, but it was a very unconventional relationship. But oddly enough, she wasn't the only entity that visited David. He says that on many evenings, sometimes Crescent would appear at his window and let herself in. They'd get busy and do the deed, but other times, smaller gray entities would enter his room and they'd just float him out through the window and up into their ship. There, he said things weren't quite as enjoyable. He said he'd have long nights full of orgies with multiple large-eyed, pointy, kite-shaped-faced women. He said they'd also perform strange experiments on him, as well as inserting nasal probes into his head. He says his body would perform like a puppet. He'd just, he'd just be having sex for what seemed like hours, over and over and over again, but was never in control. He says that on several occasions, he's been taken into a room and it was filled with babies and he had to touch each and every one. He says the human touch was really important to these hybrid babies. He says the first time I touched one of the babies, static electricity jumped from my hand into the baby. This was right before I touched it. When I pulled back shocked, I said to the insect being who was watching over the babies, wow, did you see that? And he says what's strange here is while these aliens sound like your, you know, traditional greys, it was the insect mantis aliens who were more than, <coughs> more than likely the caretakers of the hybrid babies. All 60 of his supposed alien babies. He goes on to say that the regular sex he continued to have with the extraterrestrials, as well as Crescent, whom he later referred to as the Cat Queen, was starting to cause tension within his human marriage as well, in which he also had three human children. But David also claims now that he's also the child of an alien mother. His mother is human, but also an alien who is nine feet tall, with eight fingers on each hand. He says she has human features with a kite-shaped face, huge eyes, and two tiny holes for a nose, along with a thin, thin mouth. Since 1965, when he began to study oil painting and began using it as a form of self-therapy, he uses this to express his experiences through a brushstroke throughout a series based on these memories. And I'll include some of these pictures here for you guys to look at on the Instagram. He says he developed this as an outlet for the experiences that he couldn't speak about to people around him. Though he did attend meetings of abductees in the 80s and the 90s, he stopped going to the meetings. He said the stories that were shared were too depressing for him. It's like a club that no one wants to belong to. He says he's also been visited by reptilians, and these reptiles are guilty as hell. They've apologized several times to me. They've said they're sorry for what they've done to our people. 
He says the mantises and the reptilians are the ones who are in charge. Today, 74-year-old Huggins lives a quiet life in Hoboken, New Jersey, still painting, still believing he's being visited by these alien acquaintances. And there's a very strange documentary out right now about David and his experiences called Love and Saucers by a filmmaker named Brad Abraham. We'll include some of these pictures here on the Instagram account, but you can see clearly here that there's everything from full frontal nude paintings of a Caucasian woman with an alien face. An alien snatch. Well, that looks very human to me, but, you know, (laughs) what do I know? Um, There's pictures of what we're assuming to be David naked from the rear with a giant praying mantis in a strange room. There's paintings of him laying on a forest floor being ridden by a female alien woman. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's pictures of him in a bedroom with aliens opening his bedroom door. There's pictures of him sitting in a room holding various alien gray baby hybrids. And I mean tons and tons of other photos that he's painted that I haven't included in these notes, Preston, but... I don't know. I'm very, very perplexed here and very interested in actually uh, trying to find that documentary. I think it's like four yeah. bucks right now if you rent it on YouTube. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me about this guy because at 74, you've kind of got that mentality of, you know, you ain't got a whole lot to lose at this point. But this guy is just very loud and very proud about what he says has supposedly happened. And I've watched countless interviews with him. The story's all the same. It's always his first encounter was in the forest, and she just stands up, walks over. He feels like he's, you know, out of control, just walking like a robot. He lays down, she gets on, and just takes his ass to pound town. And, <laughs> huh. and goes on to become his uh, on-again, on off-again intergalactic girlfriend. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what you said is interesting is outside of, you know, being sexy here, this is kind of similar to another person's story who also uh, did a bunch of paintings based off of his experiences in space. Yeah, and I really fucked the alien on this one like David because I didn't really read that story that you sent me. Like I I, uh, like browsed through it real quick and saw that, you know, he was painting his encounters with aliens. Yeah. And I thought that's what the story was going to be about. So I was like, oh, holy shit. This uh, really relates to uh, the story of astronaut Alan Bean, who uh, died <laughs> last year. Yeah. And then you just start talking about alien rape and, you know, mantis beings. And I'm just, wow. Yeah. I'm like, you're right field and I'm left field on this one. But <clears throat> so so your story is not going to be sexy. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, it's not going to be sexy <laughs> at all. So, you know, you think back to astronauts. Um, in the 60s, right. they were the cool, calm, and collect faces of the space program. So a lot of times, like during the, the live television, um, you know, programs of them, like, you know, when Buzz Aldrin, like, landed on the moon, uh, you, you know, they televised that, so to speak, live so that America could see what was going on. The problem with that is, you know, they didn't really know what the astronauts were going to encounter. So... Uh, you know, if they accidentally said shit, fuck, uh, they were kind of screwed. Like, you know, what the hell's that? Like, because mm-hmm, that was going to mm-hmm. be broadcast across all of America. And uh, occasionally, uh, you know, the cursing did happen. And uh, on Apollo 10, Tom Strafford, 
they were coming around uh, Cynosaurus A, which is like a giant crater. Mm-hmm. And so on live TV, he's like, uh, uh, NASA, I've got uh, Cynosaurus A right here. Well, it's bigger than shit. And uh, one of the reporters <laughs> listening was like, what, what, what did he just say? So fellow astronaut Jack uh, Schmidt uh, got on and said, uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Strafford said that uh, he's got the center source A. It's bigger than Schmidt over there. Uh, bigger than me, I guess. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he was able to kind of, you know, censor out that flub without too many people making heads or tails out of it. And, uh, so, you know, Apollo, um, 11 happened and, um, and then Apollo, which was, uh, Apollo 11 was the one where Neil Armstrong, uh, landed, they landed on the moon and walked on the moon and then Apollo 12, you know, things went to shit. And uh, of course they didn't televise any of that cause they thought the guys were going to die up there in the capsule in outer space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was a little known astronaut called, uh, Pete Conrad, who uh, was supposed to fly on Apollo 12, but uh, he had a he had a mouth of a sailor, and mm. uh, they were really worried about like if he gets up there, like he's going to try to you know put the rover into place and something would go wrong, and he'd be like, "God damn son of a bitch, shit, fucking the can!" So they're like, "How are we going to fix this problem?" Mm-hmm. Hypnosis. Mm. So they actually hypnotized him so that when he was up on, uh, you know, up on the moon, uh, whenever something bad happened, he would start to just, you know, dum 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 and he would just hum, and uh, you know, fellow astronaut Alan Bean said, "Dude, this is really weird because I've known uh, I've known Pete my whole entire you know astronaut career and." Uh, this guy's like, fuck this, fuck that, motherfuckers. And all of a sudden, like, something bad happens. Like, you know, uh, before they were uh, uh, flying into outer space and the, uh, you know, the space shuttle was trying to take off, it got hit with lightning two times. And so all the instruments and the panels are like, you know, lightning and flashing. And Alan's like, what the crap do I do? And uh, there's old Pete, dum, 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 Lightning, but um, bum, and he's like, it was just so fucking odd because in that instance, like, I wanted to scream, like, ah, we're fucked, and here's this guy humming. So, um, it is said that all three of the astronauts on that mission, when they got back from outer space, they were all three before they were allowed to do any press releases. They were all hypnotized. And uh, Alan's job while he was up there was because this was basically supposed to be one of the last, you know, actual walking on the moon missions that uh, he was supposed to take photos. And, you know, he mysteriously left the photo or, you know, the camera, um, all that. He left it in outer space like he left it on the moon. And everybody thought that that was just odd. So he left the camera, left everything on the moon. Everybody thought that that was kind of odd. And they actually had this event, uh, what they called a unknown eclipse. Mm -hmm. And um, Alan, you know, later on down the road said, well, you know, the only thing I can remember was that, um, you know, when it was fully eclipsed, the rays that came from behind the earth were all 
in the spectrum of colors. And then we saw this bright spot moving across the earth and we didn't know what it was, but we could see it moving rapidly across the planet. Hmm. And then that's, you know, that's all he ever said. So basically they saw this object eclipsing the earth and it caused this, you know, array of sunlight, like, you know, rainbows and, and whatnot, almost like light passing through glass. And uh, so he got out of the military and um, Conrad um, mysteriously died in 1977 from a motorcycle accident, but he had non-fatal injuries. So it wasn't like, you know, he crushed any ribs. He just, you know, skidded the bike, got back up, and then a day later was dead. And then on the official report, it just said died from motorcycle accident. So this really weird conspiracy like... You know, he was the one that had the biggest mouth. He was the one that had been hypnotized before he went to outer space. They got hypnotized when they got back. And so was it a security issue and did they kill him? Mm -hmm. So Alan, you know, he gets out of the military and he becomes an artist. And later on down the road, he's doing an interview and he says, the moon is the dreariest, most desolate place I can think of. Fortunately, it is one thing to paint something as it is, but it's quite another to paint something from memory and to use it as a tool to teach others. When I started painting, I could have spent my time painting things on Earth, and I have on a few occasions, but eventually I decided that those subjects weren't my niche. That's when I decided to paint things I knew best, NASA, the space program, and particularly the Apollo. He states in another interview that he's seen the moon firsthand and its soils is the blackest one could imagine, yet his, he paints the moon in rays of color, similar to the eclipse event we talked about a moment ago. And one thing that he does is um, he actually kept um, a bunch of the NASA gear against you know their will. Like, you know, as an astronaut, you're supposed to turn in all your equipment. So he kept a couple gloves, kept a couple boots, and kept a couple patches. And so he would grind up his Apollo patch and use it as pigment for his paint. And one of the the paintings that I, I downloaded um, that you can share on Instagram, you'll see uh, almost like boot prints all over the canvas. Mm -hmm. He would actually texture his painting with his original boot that he actually walked on the moon with, which I thought was kind of cool. Wow. And if you look at that, um, you know, he, he first he states that the moon is the dreariest place and the soil is the blackest than anybody can imagine. But you look at the painting and that painting is full of color. And it's been speculated for the longest time that there are glass abandoned structures on the moons left over from a past civilization. Mm -hmm. So if light's passing through glass, it would actually give this appearance of, you know, like yellows and blues and greens. And, you know, we talk about this, you know, they, they witnessed this eclipse event and the way the light was passing through it. So could it be that even though he was hypnotized, that somehow his subconscious was speaking past that? And as he put the, you know, the brush to the canvas, he was actually painting from memory all those suppressed, you know, images of, of the light filtering through the glass structures on the moon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So no sexy aliens. Sorry. <laughs> Oh no! You just you know, no mantis bed. blowjobs or anything like that. <laughs> well, that's all right. I was worried that your story wouldn't uh, match up because I know that story, and <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's not really uh, anything remotely <laughs> spectrophiliac. But have no fear, Preston, because I 
pulled out and blew the dust off of the old Sexual Hauntings Through the Ages by Colin Waters. All right, hit me with your money shot. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of these stories, (laughs) and you let me know what you think. All right. Now, our first tale of titillation is the glowing nudes. The sudden appearance of a naked adult male to a young... Now, I promise, I screamed these. There's nothing, like, perverted or... I mean, they're perverted. There's nothing... Um, there's no pedo here. There's no pedophilia here, because this first story kind of sounds like it. <clears throat> okay, here we go. The glowing nudes. The sudden appearance of a naked adult male to a young girl can be deeply disturbing. More so if the girl has lived a sheltered life in a relatively isolated part of the country. Imagine then the feeling of three young girls when confronted by the sight of a number of male naked ghosts who crossed their path whilst they were on their way home from a friend's house near Moreland, Westmoreland. Having spent the evening with a friend's <laughs> having spent the evening with friends, the three sisters were walking towards their home in a region known locally as Skella Wark, when they were startled by the tall figure of a man emerging in front of them. The man was completely naked and glowed with a strange yellow-green light, which at first must have made the girls imagine they were coming in contact with an alien. The ghostly figure walked across their path to a nearby rock, stopped, raised its fist threateningly at the girls, and then vanished into the ground. Looking at each other with amazement, the girls stood and grasped each other tight and held hands for reassurance. However, before they had come to their senses enough to speak, they witnessed a second but different naked, glowing, ghostly figure emerging from the same spot. This figure too crossed their path, lifted its fist, cursed the girls, and sank slowly into the ground. Though taken aback by the strangeness of the figures, the sight of naked genitals and the sight of naked genitals, the girls had the presence of mind to begin counting. And as a continuous stream of these strange glowing ghosts went through the same motions as their predecessors, appearing nude, shaking their fists violently, and then disappearing into the ground, finally the eleventh and final figure vanished into the earth. Terrified, the girls ran all the way home, desperately trying to convince their mother of what they had just seen. Many years later, an investigation found that in 1827, eleven human skeletons said to have laid on that spot for over a thousand years and had been and had been recently unearthed at Skelawark. The skeletons were all said to have had a gold bangle on their wrist, which was removed before the bones were reburied or otherwise disposed of. The one question had possibly been answered regarding the angry fist-waving of the ghosts, no doubt to show their disapproval of the removal of their bangles. Investigators have yet to explain the second and most unusual feature of this particular haunting. That is, their glowing yellow-green bodies. Further instances of the haunting were not recorded. Perhaps that is what happened. Perhaps what had happened was simply by chance the sisters had witnessed the final ghostly procession of the souls of eleven skeletons that had been earlier exhumed and robbed of their precious gold bracelets. But Preston, to me, that doesn't answer the most important question. Why were they naked? Yeah. 
And so then what, how's it what, sexual? What, what, were they, who was fucking who? What's going on here? <laughs> That's just a teaser here. Up next, we have the Fanny of Cock Lane. Not even a giggle from you? I'm holding out. I'm waiting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Many of London's ancient dwellings claim to hold the title of the capital's most famous haunted house. This was the case with 20 Cock Lane, which was demolished in 1979. The building was believed to have been built not long after the Great Fire of London in 1666 and always suffered from poltergeist activity for as long as anybody could remember. Moving furniture, scratching noises, tappings at a window, and various bumps in the night became commonplace, and it's said that one of the building's tenants, a John Kent, would delight in the unnerving of his servants with ghostly stories of what had gone on in the house. Around the late 1750s, Kent employed a young house servant named Fanny, whose surname is not recorded. She was reputedly a simple, superstitious country girl who Kent found he could easily manipulate. She was extremely frightened by the noises and other phenomenon caused by the resident poltergeist, and before long her employer had convinced her that he was able to communicate with the ghosts of the house. They could only be calmed, if he claimed, by sexual activity taking place within the walls of the building. Fanny was led to believe that Kent's wife was denying him conjugal rights, and it was this that was bringing on the paranormal activity. The naive girl, the naive girl, was persuaded to engage in sexual activity with her employer, and before long, a passionate affair ensued. Time passed, and Fanny became bored with the relationship. However, the noises had strangely failed to manifest themselves during the time that she was having a sexual relationship with Kent. She continued to believe, rightly or wrongly, this was due to her love affair. Though she continued to join her employer in the bedroom, Fanny now found more and more excuses not to, and within a short time, Kent began to realize that his power over the servant girl was not as strong as he thought. Once more, he warned, Fanny, the ghosts have communicated with me again, telling me they were becoming uneasy with the lack of sexual activity and that if this did not increase, the knockings, bangings, and tappings would recommence. Furthermore, he warned, should this happen, then whoever is responsible will die shortly afterwards, making it quite plain to the servant girl that it was not he who was responsible for the lack of sexual activity in the house, but it was her. He insisted that to save her life, she should immediately resume their sexual relations at a more frequent rate. You don't touch my penis, the ghosts are going to get you. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a fucking creep. Fanny was evidently not convinced by her employer's story, for she continued to visit him less and less in his bedchamber. It was only when the wrappings and bumps began to occur once more, she became frightened, remembering that Kent had told her if she stopped, she might die. Confiding in a friend, she was advised to ignore the poltergeist activity, which she was told was probably the work of Kent himself, and she was to end the affair with him. But Fanny found her master would not easily accept the fact their relationship was over. He continued to pass on death threats, which he claimed to have been made by the spirits of the house, and only agreed to end the relationship with Fanny 
when she threatened to tell his wife about everything that had gone on. Kent was then furious. Be it as you wish, he told her, but mark my words, young woman, you will be dead within one month. As strange as that may seem, Fanny died shortly afterwards. Rumors spread that Kent had been having an affair with the serving girl and had poisoned her with arsenic in order to stop the details of their affair from becoming public. The poltergeist activity continued, growing more and more intensely, until finally Kent could not stand it any longer either, and finally moved out of the residence. The ghostly activity neither followed Kent nor ceased for the new owner of the house. Its new tenant, Elizabeth Parsons, began to suffer the disturbances almost from the day she moved in. Parsons also reveled in widely publicizing the activities of the resident poltergeist, and before long, the ghosts of Cock Lane had become something of a well-known mischievous activity throughout the city. The writer Samuel Johnson was among the many investigators who visited the house. Johnson did indeed become skeptical of Elizabeth Parsons' claims and declared her a fraudster, a claim that was taken up by the authorities who took great pains to discover whether Elizabeth or her family could be the cause of the knockings and other activities. The investigation was long and thorough, even going to such extremes as binding the family's arms and legs and suspending furniture on ropes above the floor just to see if noises would still occur. Unfortunately for the Parsons, the house was completely peaceful during the period in which they were tied up and furniture suspended, and the family was then jailed for fraud. Though they continued to insist they had taken no part in causing the strange noises, many years later it was said similar strange tappings were to be found coming from Fanny's grave as well. Said she was a finger-banging skeleton. However, to quiet persisting rumors, an exorcism was still performed, and consequently, the coffin was re-entered into the crypt of St. John's Church in Clerkswell. I'm sorry, Clerkenwell. Curious ghost, <coughs> curious ghost hunters who were examining the case in the mid-1800s were said to have located the coffin and opened it up. Inside of Fanny's coffin was the perfectly preserved body of Fanny herself, the Fanny of Cock Lane. Her features were as beautiful as the day she died. Some say her preservation was a sign that her ghost had never left her body, accounting for the strange knockings that were said to emanate from inside. More skeptical observers argued that there was a scientific explanation for the preservation of Fanny's body. In the dawn of forensic science in, 18, in the 1800s, it had been noted that the bodies of those who have died from arsenic poison did not rot the same way as ordinary bodies. Arsenic effectively preserved the corpse in a state of mummification. So could it be, then, that despite the obvious evidence of poltergeist activity, there was a more sinister earthly reason for the death of Fanny, the Fanny of Cock Lane? Or... Was the Fanny of Cock Lane indeed a phantom? So, Presto, what do you know about that arsenic poisoning and the possible um, mummification of a body? Does that sound at all uh, familiar to you? Um, not really. But uh, when uh, you know Abe Lincoln uh, was uh, assassinated and 
you know, way back in the day, uh, took forever to get his body from one part of the country to the other, that, uh, you know, the embalming process wasn't perfected yet. So they said that whatever they used on him preserved him so well that uh, when somebody broke into his grave in the early 1900s, like, he looked pristine. So, you know, maybe they used arsenic on old Honest Abe. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that we should look into more and more and more. Yeah. I was looking here at an, an article called How Scientists Learn to Identify Poison Victims. But it is indeed too long for me to read through to figure out if there's anything in here important. So they say why they call it like Cock Lane. Was it, uh, you know, named after like penises or is it named after chickens? <laughs> I think you're looking a little too close on the nose there. It was probably something to do with chickens, I'd like to imagine. Or is it like, a, you know, like a bakery street? Is they, they have that, uh, you know, that dessert over in England called like Spotted Dick. Like uh, maybe people, you know, made a lot of Spotted Dick and they're like, oh, Cheerio, welcome to Cock Lane. I think it'd then be called Spotted Dick Lane. <laughs> Spotted Dick have, Court. <laughs> that, that just doesn't have a ring to it. Like, oh, where are you going, Jimmy? Oh, I'm going to Spotted Dick Lane. Like, you know, Cock Lane really kind of rolls off the tongue there. Sounds like a red light district with a bakery. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going down the old Cock Lane to see my fanny. Do you know what I'm saying, mate? <laughs> Oh no! Oh. Finger banging a ghost and touching myself. Well, Cheerio. it's funny you say that finger banging ghost because I'm going to tell you next about the Phantom Groper of Boily Rectory. Now, it's a side note here. Boily, I'm sorry, Borley Rectory is said to be one of the most famous haunted locations in England. In 1939, the rambling Victorian mansion of Borley Rectory in Essex, was burnt to the ground. With its destruction went the legend of what is thought to be England's most haunted house. Many tales were told of the strange going-ons inside the building. A ghost of an angry old man in a top hat would slap the face of the daughter of the rector, Reverend Henry Dawson Bull, whilst she slept at night. Poltergeist would throw items across the room, pebbles, keys, even metals were said to have been scattered throughout the air for no apparent reason. Fires would start mysteriously in the oddest of places, and ghostly footsteps were heard both day and night. Experiments with automatic writing were undertaken after mysterious messages were found to be written upon walls and on scraps of random paper. Noises of all kinds manifested themselves regularly, while bells would ring, chanting could be heard, and monostatic singing and medieval music were often heard at night. Though hundreds of people were terrified by these strange events that occurred from the years 1863 through 1939, no one was ever harmed, though repeatedly one of the ghosts was known to sexually molest sleepers in one particular bedroom. The first such incident occurred in the year of 1892. At the time, a headless man had repeatedly been seen wandering in the bushes in the garden. Guests staying at the Bull household were given a small bedroom, which until that time was supposed to have been freed of hauntings. The Reverend Dawson Bull's son, named Harry, who had now taken over the house, 
made light of the building's reputation, and he advised the unsettled guests that they were in the safest room in the house. Unfortunately, it was not long before people sleeping in the room, whether it be male or female, made complaints that they had been visited in the night by a ghostly presence. The unseen visitor apparently made sexual advances in which were intense and persistent. In each case, the story was the same. Guests would retire to their bed, only to be awakened by a whispering voice. You want to see my cock? I'd fuck me. (laughs) As they struggled to light the candle, the flame would be mysteriously blown out and the whispering would stop. Later in the night, the covers of the bed would be lifted and a ghostly hand would caress their legs and genitals. Naturally, their first reaction would be to freeze in fright. But on coming to their senses, the unfortunate guest would pull back the bedclothes and jump out of the bed, believing they had experienced some sort of weird dream. On going back to sleep, the ghostly hand would once again get back to work, and the indignant guest were known to leave the next morning, refusing to sleep in the building another night. Some might suspect that more worldly hands were at work and that perhaps some servant or other living person might have carried out the phantom gropings. This explanation, of course, was put forward at the time of the hauntings. But an experiment had been included with close inspection of the room for hidden panels and passages, and locking volunteers in the room all night failed to come up with any conclusion other than there was a phantom groper, indeed, from ghostly realms. No one ever saw the ghost or disembodied hand, as the case might be, and it was found that guests sleeping anywhere else in the room other than the bed itself did not suffer the unwelcome advances. Only one clue was ever given to what might shed some light on the molester's identity. This came in one of the whispered messages, which appeared to be spoken in French. The message mentioned the name Marie, together with what was thought to be the French word layette, meaning milk. The ghost had then become known many years later as Marie the Milkmaid. Though such a living person was unknown, and this name is in a foreign tongue, it appeared insignificant at the time. Later to be discovered that in 1967, oops, sorry, 1677, a French nun had reportedly been strangled by her lover in a building which formerly stood on the same site as Borley Rectory. One of the spirit messages which was mysteriously appeared on the building's walls in the 1930s stated the body was still buried in the rectory cellar. The nun's name, Marie Lorraine. So what says you to that, Preston, the Phantom Groper? So we've gone from you know a, a, a you know a, a a dead body that was finger banging itself in a coffin to a ghost that uh, you know saying touch my penis, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I think for the last story, Presto, what I'll do is on your guidance, I will flip through the pages, stop at a story, and that will be what we finish on. This could either go really great or it could go really bad. Yeah, this is your fault. (laughs) All right, here we go. Oh, this one sounds good. A sight for sore eyes. 
It was a winter's evening in 1971 when Mark Ferdin, a college student, was alone in the college library reading from textbooks and preparing for exams. This one sounds hot already. As he read, his tired eyes were distracted by something which seemed to move behind a row of bookcases in front of him. Getting up to investigate, he was startled to come across an attractive young woman dressed only in a very skimpy, modern negligee. The girl, who looked quite solid, smiled at Farden, whispered a single word, sexy, and then quickly vanished through a solid row of books. Farden immediately finished his studying, thinking that perhaps he'd been overdoing things, and went back to his room to mull over the strange experience. Feeling rather foolish, Farden told his roommate what had just happened. And having exchanged a few jokes, the pair went out for the evening, forgetting all about the incident. Returning at about 11 p.m., the pair found their room in a ransacked state. Books were thrown everywhere, clothes were scattered as though caught up in a whirlwind. Thieves were suspected, but nothing appeared to be missing, and there was no visible signs of forced entry that could be found. Farden told his roommate that he would go and report the matter and left quickly by way of a long corridor leading to the stairs. As he approached the stairwell, he was startled by a figure which seemed to have appeared from nowhere and was now standing halfway down the stairs. And she was looking up at him. Continuing on his way, it was not long before he recognized the same young girl he had encountered in the library earlier in the evening, though this time her negligee was unfastened leaving nothing to the imagination. Farden stopped with anticipation, waiting for the solid and real-looking figure to vanish, which she did within seconds, after smiling and teasing, displaying her seductive body. Are you unwrapping something? <laughs> no, I, I just got on YouTube and typed in flapping drink it noise and played that in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Sicko. <laughs> I thought you're unwrapping a popsicle. <laughs> oh, geez. Here we go. In a blind panic, the young student ran back upstairs three at a time and began charging along the passageway, only to find his roommate running towards him at the opposite direction. Mark! Mark! He cried in a panic. You're not going to believe what just happened to me. Both young men returned to the room, which by now was tidy and in order. Farden's roommate explained that as soon as Farden left the room, all hell broke out. Clothes started swirling around the room, books had flown to the bookshelf, all of their own accord. The experience was decided as like watching a movie in reverse. Oh shit, sorry. The experience was described as like watching a movie in reverse. Everything that had been thrown around the room had returned all of its own accord to its original tidy position. Though neither could explain what was happening, they both realized that the apparent tidy poltergeist and a lady in the negligee must have some connection. Over the next few days, they began tracing the history of their room to try to find records of either a student committing suicide there or any other similar stories which might have relevance to the strange event. Strangely, nothing was ever found and even attempts at contacting the sexy-clad ghost by Ouija board and spirit mediums drew a blank. 
till finally time passed and the pair almost forgot all about their strange experience. After graduating, they lost contact with each other. A number of years later, the two former students met by complete accident while attending a conference in London. It was inevitable that the pair should begin to discuss the haunting, and Farden told his roommate there was something he had not told him at the time of the event. His friend was intrigued and asked what it was. Well, I didn't want to frighten you, but the girl in the negligee spoke to me. She said her name was Anne Karanoff, and she was going to get you. The former roommate looked shocked and turned white. Arden tried to reassure him, well, don't worry, she would have got you by now if she's going to get you at all. His friend smiled and recomposed himself, saying that he would like to introduce Farden to his wife, who had just entered the room. I think you may have met before. Looking at the woman, Farden said that he did not recognize her and thought the previous meeting was rather unlikely. Standing up to greet the woman, his friend made the introduction. I'd like to introduce you to my wife, Anne. I think you ought to know, her maiden name was Karanov. She got me after all. Farden didn't recognize the woman. She was not the same figure he had seen in the negligee, nor, it transpired, had Farden's friend's wife had any psychic or ghostly experiences which could have shed light on the strange coincidence. The friends kept in touch, and to this day have suffered no ill effects from the sexy ghost or used the same uncommon name. Nor had they ever solved the mystery of the poltergeist activity which occurred at the same time Farden's second sight of the attractive young ghost. Ooh. That was kind of a letdown. <laughs> oh, you think so? <laughs> I mean, he didn't, like, he didn't even get to see like some ghost titties. Like, you know, lingerie was just kind of slowly falling down and then she like disappeared. Like, she at least could have gave him a show. You know, <laughs> poor guy. Well, buddy, I think uh, I think that's enough sexiness for one night. Oh man! Oh, uh, there's not a dry seat in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so check out our friend Mark's podcast, his solo show, Pixelated Sausage. Check out his video game series of videos, Attack the Backlog. Preston, what is my favorite, most favorite race car podcast ever? Sports Cars Unleashed, mm, where if you're not it. first, you're last. That is the one. All right, guys, I do want to also mention the Patreon here. We do have a slot opened up here called Paranormal Nightmares for a dollar a month. If you're a fan of either show, because 13 Nightmares will start soon, and you want to show a little love, you could for a buck a month. That dollar will not get you any extra content. It is just, you know, a goodwill donation if you decide you wanted to. But listen, you don't have to. We don't want you to if you can't. We don't expect you to. So we still think you're great. We still think you're awesome. And again, that dollar would not get you any content you normally would not get. So, but you know what? All podcasts have a Patreon and it does go towards good use. And also, guys, check out our friends at gunslingersoap.com check out their awesome soap and please if you're in the wichita area check out cd trade post at pawnee and seneca tell leslie the guys at pixelated paranormal sent you in there it won't get you anything but might get you a high five get a used blu-ray get a used video game get a brand new spank and pop vinyl and a kick-ass t-shirt mm-hmm 
I just forgot that I put pineapple juice in this beer I was drinking and almost choked on a handful of pineapple. Pineapple juice. Hmm. I almost <laughs> <laughs> It goes with the theme of the, the episode, doesn't it? Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, what do you want to plug, Preston? You got anything special you want to plug? Yeah, listen, as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that will get you down to pound town with an alien with a <laughs> face shaped like a kite, check out <laughs> BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and use those that code to get sexy scents like Bay Rum, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh, Citrus, Classic, Dundee Cedar, Mint, Oh my, your face will just be luscious, smelling good, and mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I think that about does it. Um, Preston, anything else you want to announce? Um, no. Cool. Me neither. <coughs> Man, if I could get this, this episode is going to be <coughs> fun. <coughs> Man. This episode's going to be fun to edit. <laughs> I get these coffee yeah. fits. They always say it goes down smoother when it tastes like pineapple, but apparently you're pr proving that wrong. <laughs> I hope it does, because what I experienced is anything but. <laughs> uh, cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully we didn't make things too steamy wherever you're listening. <laughs> these, uh, uh, these stories were not as uh, titillating as I thought they might be. <laughs> <laughs> Although that first one, dude, I really do want to get a glimpse at that uh, that documentary yeah. Love and Saucer, so I might check that out because the, the trailer does look pretty creepy. So, cool. All right, well, catch us next time. And as always, guys, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that like to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal your guide to the unusual and the strange.